National states have tried to instill a new identity and a new national pride in the ethnically disinherited. But how can the ethnically disinherited be proud of being Brazilian or Chilean of a society that tried to destroy their cultural heritage of a nationality shared with the oppressor? That was Paulo Suez from the chapter Inculturation in Mysterium Liberationis, the text that will be framing today's interview. And this is the Liberation Theology Podcast, a close look at the basic concepts of Latin American liberation theology. I'm your host, David Inchauskas. I want to welcome Laurel Potter to the show for a conversation on inculturation. Laurel is an instructor in the theology department at St. Thomas University in Minnesota, a doctoral candidate in systematic theology at Boston College, and the co-author of Remembering the Reign of God, the Decolonial Witness of El Salvador's Church of the Poor. Laurel, thank you so much for kindly accepting my invitation to join the podcast. And I've given a few details here to begin about your work and research, but perhaps you might kick us off with a fuller picture of yourself and your background with liberation theology. Sure. Thanks, David. I'm really grateful for the invitation and glad to be here to think out loud with you a little bit today. I think my encounter with liberation theology really begins back in my Spanish classes in high school. Um, I did not grow up Catholic, but ended up going to a Catholic high school. And my Spanish teacher was this Chilean woman who had grown up in Chile in Santiago in the 80s and then found herself living in Akron, Ohio in the early 2000s. And she would just teach us like the prayers of the church at the beginning of class every day or teach the Our Father, teach the Hail Mary in Spanish. And then we spent a lot of time watching um, kind of like liberation theology oriented films. There was the Motorcycle Diaries, of course, as a classic. There was one documentary about Fidel Castro that she really loved to show every year. Different Chilean films, different Mexican films that really um, presented us with these questions between Latin American Catholicism and politics and justice and the poor. So I think really in high school, some early seeds were planted. And then I went to St. Louis University as an undergrad started as a math major. I don't think I even knew theology was a thing I could study. Uh, and after the first class of calculus, whatever it was, I was sobbing to my mom on the phone about how I couldn't do it anymore. And then I went to a theology class, fell in love, changed my major several times, but ended up taking some classes with Ruben Rosario Rodriguez at SLU. Some he taught in Spanish about John Sabrino. There was kind of an introduction to liberation theology class. And then also at SLU, the Mev Paleo Scholarship was established before my time there in honor of Mev Paleo, who was this Catholic photojournalist from St. Louis who died of a brain tumor in her early 30s. And her family established this scholarship to help undergraduate students get outside of kind of marinating in U.S. context and politics and foreign policy and spend a couple months in Nicaragua over the summer. So I participated in that program between my junior and senior year of undergrad. There were five of us that lived in Ciudad Sandino, which is a bigger now municipality outside of Managua, lived with a family. There was an internship at a local nonprofit. We learned about ecclesial-based communities. And then after undergrad,
undergrad, I moved to El Salvador. I, I got in touch with an organization in San Salvador that grew out of the experience of ecclesial-based communities in the 70s and 80s and moved there after I graduated from college um, and ended up living there for six years, living and working closely with the SEBs, with the popular church in El Salvador. And um, that kind of directs most of my interests and the joint research projects that we kind of work through together now. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing a bit about yourself as we begin. And the structure of today's episode will be will be a little different in that we'll first cover the highlights of Paulo Suez's chapter on inculturation. And Suez is a German Catholic theologian who has lived in Brazil since 1966. And he wrote his doctoral thesis on popular Catholicism in Brazil and made his mark, especially in the area of missiology. So today, Laurel will cover the first part of the text and I'll cover the second. And then we'll dedicate some time to critiques and questions that emerge from the text and dialogue with our own intercultural experiences and studies. So I'll now turn it over to Laurel, who will guide us through the first sections of the chapter. Great. So I remember the first time I read this chapter was when I was a master's student at the UCA in San Salvador, and it was part of our class on inculturation, which means or like the implication is indigenous Christian theology. That's kind of what the class was supposed to be about. And Swiss and this whole conversation actually about inculturation from a liberation theology perspective is unique because it's not based on just this class analysis of who the poor are, but talks about who the other is, which explains kind of Swiss's connection to missiology, evangelization, and how all of that comes together. So the starting point for Swiss in this article is Evangelii Nuntiandi, which was issued in 1975 by Pope Paul VI, 10 years after Vatican II ended in light of the previous year's synod on evangelization. And the Pope kind of pessimistically identifies this rupture between the gospel and culture. He says, like, the gospel is not being, or people aren't familiar enough with the cultures or the philosophies that gave rise to the contemporary doctrinal expressions of Catholic Christianity, and how do we kind of remedy this? And one conclusion that the document comes to is that there is no culture that is the standard bearer of the gospel, that there is no one culture, say, for example, Western European culture, that is the most authentic expression of the gospel or through which the gospel is most appropriately expressed. This encyclical really takes pains to say that every human culture is equidistant from the expression of the gospel, and that true evangelization is the process of the gospel message, the good news of the reign of God, becoming incarnate and expressed in every human culture. So the document really disabuses us of this notion that like you're, everyone has to understand the categories of European medieval philosophy in order to be Christian. And then Swiss kind of adds this point to Evangelii Nuntiandi, and he says that in Latin America, there was never a rupture between the gospel and culture because there was never, he says, an amalgamation or there was never integration. They were never united. And he really brings our focus and our attention to the fact that the Christian message arrived to the Latin American Caribbean subcontinent violently, that they were character these years were characterized by destruction, superimposition, and that the process of, if we can even call it evangelization at that time, was really a survival strategy of folks living on the continent 
given the the violent military conquest of their lands, of their cultures, of their religiosities and spiritualities. So Swiss says that in Latin America and the Caribbean, when we talk about evangelization and we talk about mission, we have to be cognizant of the fact that this conversation hasn't been a peaceful, intellectual dialogue for the last several hundred years. It started in violence, violence endures, and that kind of marks how Christianity has taken root in Latin America and the Caribbean. So that's kind of the starting point that he takes. And then he dives into the the concept of culture. You got to do some work to say, what are we talking about when we talk about culture? And he brings up first several things to consider, some caveats, and then he defines some different concepts of culture. And then he talks about how cultures can relate to each other. So in that first section of kind of some caveats, he talks about a distinction between nature and culture, nature as something given, and then culture we can understand as what human communities kind of build on top of what is given biologically or in nature. So a fundamental distinction between nature and culture. He says culture is inherent to the human condition, Culture is not something that human beings can opt out of. Everybody has a culture. And I think inherent in that claim is like, if there's a culture that is considered normative, we have to do some extra work to identify that that is a culture and it's not just normal human existence. In general, he talks about culture as a collection of experiences and practices that involve our own imaginaries, our symbols, and our material and physical realities, and that these are oriented to survival. He argues that the customs that are developed, the practices, the common understandings are oriented towards facilitating present and future survival, that it is related to this biological need for life. In talking about different cultures, he reminds us that no culture can be normative for another. He cautions us to be careful of cultural ethnocentrism. But at the same time, he says this cultural relativism, this I can't really understand you, you can't really understand me, while that might be true to a degree, we have to relativize the cultural relativism to prevent um, like internal mechanisms of death from taking root in other cultures that aren't being seen by outside eyes, um, and to avoid the narcissistic tendencies of our own culture to think that I am expressing something in the best possible way and no one could possibly understand the heights of truth that we have achieved. So he, he, he tries to strike this balance between cultures being these hermetically sealed linguistic linguistic, biological worlds that we develop, and, and does have some hope, does have some opening for being able to relate to and talk between cultures, although with a lot of work. So he says that the word culture ultimately remains polysemic, that when one person says culture, that's not necessarily what other folks are going to mean by culture. But then he identifies some different concepts that scholars use, that people talking about culture and enculturation use, that are kind of helpful in distinguishing what we mean by culture. So one is the integral concept, and I kind of think of this as a bird's eye view. Um, for describing the diversity of human cultures. The integral concept is a way of saying, this is my culture, this is your culture, there are all different human cultures on the planet, and these cultures all have material or adaptive elements, kind of the the elements most closely related to our biological or what he would call natural states, social or associative levels, so interpersonal relationships, how we communicate and talk to each other, how we organize our societies, and then ideological or interpretive systems, so kind of the conceptual level of culture. That all cultures have these three levels or these three points that are integrated, and that when we think about culture integrally, we're thinking about all three of those things working together. 
He also talks about a classist like concept of culture or a classicist concept. And this complements the integral concept. It uses those categories of the material adaptive, the social associative, and the ideological interpretive, but makes the claim that the material adaptive level exercises a determining influence over the associative and interpretive systems. So the material world that a culture, that a people live in, the natural reality, the foods available, the climate, these are determining for how the interpersonal relationships work out and kind of how the concepts work out. Another way of talking about culture or another meaning that he sees people have in the world culture is the cognoscative concept, the cognoscative, yeah, concept, which prioritizes the interpretive system. If the classicist concept starts with the material reality, this concept starts with the interpretive system and pretty much identifies culture with art, ideas, poetry, philosophy, music. And he says that this can sometimes be a very shallow understanding of what culture is. And then finally, he discusses the analogous concept of culture. Analogous, uh, the analogy that, that this concept uses is agriculture or the culture of a bacteria in a petri dish in a lab. Um, so he's kind of using those very visual, very tactile ideas of what culture is to talk about like the intentional cultivation of a world ethic, essentially. So when we talk about a civilization of world solidarity, he points to the UN Declaration of Human Rights as trying to identify what are those cultural values that might be common to most, if not all, human cultures, so that we can live on our shared planet in a human way, given all of our diverse cultural identities and backgrounds. So those are some different meanings of, of what culture uh, can refer to. And then he talks about relationships between cultures, enculturation, acculturation, integration, inculturation. And these are different degrees of appropriation of another culture as one's own, being born into a culture, and, and understanding also that to a degree our culture is given, but we also play a role in forming and perpetuating our cultures. Integration, living in multiple cultural worlds at a time. And then he takes these concepts of culture and applies them to the church. And this is the last thing that I'll touch on here. He wants to historically reconstruct how cultures have played a role in the development of Christianity over time. And what can we learn about enculturation from his historical examples of Christian missionary activity? So he goes back and recovers some of these classic examples of the early church of Christian culture, of cultures being in contradiction with each other in trying to express what Christianity is about. One of the first that he talks about is the mission to Antioch and uh, the story of St. Stephen. In, in Antioch, there were Hellenic Jews and there were Jew Hebrew-speaking Jewish people who were followers of Christ. This is really before the separation of Judaism and Christianity. And the Hellenic-speaking Jews, he even identifies that maybe St. Stephen came from a Samaritan background or that this community ended up living in Samaria, talks about how the, the Hellenic Jews were a little bit marginalized and a little bit pushed to the side as opposed to the Hebrew-speaking Jews. The Hellenic community was worried that their widows were not receiving their daily allowance or their daily sustenance from the community at large. And so we see kind of some of these internal, intercultural conflicts in the early Jewish Christian communities in this 
episode from the early church in Antioch. He also talks about St. Paul uh, being the missionary to the Gentiles. And so translating some of how early Jewish Christians were understanding the role of Christ and translating that into non-Jewish categories for the Hellenic communities surrounding ancient Israel. So the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15 is kind of the culmination of this when the early Christians decide that Gentile Christians do not have to adopt all of the cultural practices of the Jewish Christians. So this is when Christianity and Judaism starts to separate. And these these cultural elements are um, really at the forefront of what the community is talking about. And Swiss says that we didn't really have, we collectively, the Christian tradition, didn't look at these episodes as moments of interculturality until the Reformation, basically. So then he jumps forward to the Reformation and is talking about the Protestant critique of, of of Catholicism in at the time, pre-Council of Trent, Council of Trent, and how the Protestant acceptance of vernacular languages and having scripture in vernacular languages and talking about them started by the Protestant church is really in the contemporary, more contemporary story, one of the first times that Christians start thinking about culture in a really productive way. So that's maybe the first half of the piece. Uh, and then David, I'll let you kind of pick up the threads of where this is going. Well, thank you for that with the parts one through three. And I would have to say not an easy task because there's a lot going on in the text. So I really appreciate your your amazing ability to uh, hit home the major points there. Part four deals with philosophical tensions around enculturation. And there's two sections here. And so I'll get into one point from each. The first section is titled The Universal and the Particular. And in this section, Suez lays out a rather interesting historical dialectic about identity and solidarity that we might break up into three movements. First, there's the violent uniting, and uh, uniting in quotes, caused by colonization and enslavement. Now, colonized and enslaved peoples are forced into a relation of domination with their European oppressors. And second, there's the violent separating of independence. And part of the separating entails the question of the identity of the newly independent nations, who, for example, are the Mexican people in the wake of their wars against the Spanish, against the French, against the United States. It is impossible to seamlessly return to the pre-colonial status. The effects of the violent uniting of colonization and enslavement are not merely erasable. That past haunts the present, it reproduces itself in the present. And as the introductory quote to this episode pointed out, independence is not the end of oppression. Nevertheless, in the midst of this murky middle moment of the dialectic, a third moment emerges. How will the independent people go about reuniting with the world? Who will they be newly independent now on the world stage? How will they relate to other independent decolonizing states? And how will they relate to their oppressor states whose desire for domination does not simply disappear at the moment of independence, but continues in different ways? So we have this uniting, separating, reuniting. And I want to illustrate this point with a bit of my research on Honduran cinema, because there was a film that came out a few years ago that was on the historical figure from Central America, Francisco Morazan. And Francisco Morazan was um, 
one of the key figures involved in the independence struggle and one of one of the key figures of kind of developing a united Central America. There was a brief moment when Central America was kind of united uh, as one before it splintered into many different countries, which perpetuates until this day. So this is a Honduran filmmaker who's making a film about Morazan, and he decided to hire an actor to play the role of Morazan, who was from Colombia. And this caused some controversy because many Central Americans were like, well, you should have a Central American play the role of Morazan. His response to that was was kind of a way of addressing a way of addressing the third point of this dialectic. He said, I don't want to make provincial Honduran cinema. I want my cinema to be integrated into our globalized world. So I chose to hire a Colombian actor because one, he's very good, but then two, he's going to be able to help translate the work into the broader Latin American culture. I don't want this film to be only for Central Americans, but to say something to our globalized world. So regardless of what one might think about that particular response, I would have to say it illustrates one way of addressing how is it that we're going to now in our neo-colonized but independent state relate to the rest of the world and integrate or not with the world system. So the second philosophical section is on the other and the poor, one of the sections that, that Laurel mentioned uh, as important in the first reading of this. And it's essentially maybe what we call in the United States often intersectionality nowadays. And, and Suez uh, observes that Black and Indigenous communities should not and do not want to be lumped up into the category of poor. Poor Black and Indigenous communities have experiences that are different from those of poor white or mestizo communities, and one cannot simply assume that there's an organic existing solidarity between oppressed people of different races, ethnicities, and genders. One cannot simply assume that these groups have the same goals or the same game plan for achieving their goals. Sometimes, Suez notes, white and mestizo revolutionaries think that some indigenous and enslaved descendant people do not want to join the struggle for liberation, that they have an alienated consciousness that instead of joining the struggle, that they want to accommodate themselves into the structures of neocolonial capitalist domination. And Suez suggests that this interpretation is false. Indigenous and enslaved descendant people do have a love for liberation and freedom, but it is possible that in some cases their desire for this liberation and freedom has been wounded. And a perception of a lack of willingness should not be simply attributed to their own false consciousness. Rather, one might frame this wounded desire in terms of an importance for these communities to experience an integration of the joy of the end goal of liberation with a joyful process of liberation. The means of the process of liberation should carry something of the end. And this is kind of a, a complex section. <laughs> so I wanted to give a few things, uh, a few examples that might get a little bit at what he might be talking about. So a few anecdotes. One would be it was just last summer. I was going for a hike in the mountains in the south of France uh, near Marseille, where the where the the pop, as I want to say in French, is where the Pope is arriving today. So right in that whole area, and I was going for a hike with a friend from Congo, uh, Kinshasa. And I noted that on one of the rocks, there was the communist hammer and sickle. And so I said, "Oh, you know, look at the communist hammer, hammer and sickle, you know, on on these this rock." And he was like, "You know." 
I'm just that's so alien to my culture. He was like, uh, and 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 my and the the thing that was shocking to me about that was that this is this is a Congolese Jesuit priest who is very revolutionary, very left leaning. But what he was trying to say and communicate to me, my understanding of it was there's not only that way of thinking about revolution. People in my community, we don't want to always be referred to Marxism-Leninism as the way of accomplishing the struggle. Uh, we have our own way of struggling. Related to that, I was also, Jesuit communities pr provoke uh, lots of good uh, intercultural conversations because many of our communities are, are international. When I was at Xavier, there was a priest from Tanzania, and we were having a conversation also about revolution and socialism and different things. And he said, what I would really like a lot of white scholars to know is that we in Africa have non-Marxist, non-European theories of socialism. And I wish that people would would study that more so that, again, we would not constantly be referred to the white revolutionary experience. And then a last one would be a little bit more recent example from the United States is that we have the auto workers union strike. There's been some talk about the strike tactics and there's the stand up strike tactic, you know, where different factories will be closed, but not all at the same time, not all of the workers going on strike at the same time, but workers from certain factories striking in a way that's unpredictable for the capitalists to be able to predict and all that. So the question is sometimes people who are the diehard revolutionary type that you know you go all the way or you don't go any way at all are criticizing this by saying, well, just, just do a total strike. I mean, put the, put the pressure on. Why are we going with this midway tactic? What one of the responses that was been had been given was that a little bit of Suez's point here is that we want to have a somewhat joyful process of liberation. And if we all strike at the same time, we know that potentially we're going we're going to really suffer because is the strike fund going to be able to last if we have no one in the union who's working? How are we going to be able to pay for those who are not working? And so it kind of puts this into a perspective of sometimes what might be considered a dogmatic approach that is based on a strict interpretation of European revolutionary theory does not match with the experiences of different communities and their goals and desires for carrying out the struggle. Then the final part of the text gets into some theological and pastoral orientations. So I want to consider the first two. He gives so many, but it's, I mean, it's just it's so hard to, to speak about everything. But I'll get into the first two. So the first, Suez writes of an analogy between enculturation and incarnation. Fascinating. He means that as Christ incarnated in the first century into a history of a particular people, the church now enculturates with particular peoples as well. And Christ was able to share the good news of liberation with the people of first century Palestine because he spoke their language. He deeply studied their religious beliefs and practices. And put simply, he was just a human being existing in a particular cultural milieu that he both embraced and challenged. And so too, the Christian who today seeks to be an effective messenger of the gospel in a certain cultural context should speak the language of the people with whom an intercultural bridge is being built, deeply study their religious beliefs and practices, and simply exist as a human being in a web of relationships in that environment. And that leads into his second point, which is that it's not sufficient 
for the messenger of the gospel to enculturate the gospel message. Messengers themselves should be enculturated. And what I think Suez is after here, in a way, is authenticity. An enculturated person is necessarily in relationship with people in the ambient culture. They do not merely contemplate the culture as if from the outside for the sake of a utilitarian delivery of the most effective version of their message. Rather, their way of relating, of first relating themselves to the source, the word of Christ, by receiving it, and then relating to other receivers of this word. The messenger of the gospel builds, he uses this image of the water canal, together with other receivers of the water of life, so that this water can then flow between them. Let me offer a point of comparison to contemporary Ignatian spirituality and missiology by way of conclusion. One thing that I was really inculcated in the novitiate was that God is already at work. You know, when we go off for our different Jesuits move around a lot. You know, we have different stages of formation. We're moving around every two to three years in the novitiate. We're moving around every few months to different assignments. We should not go into a new context with the idea that, you know, I'm bringing the gospel to this or I'm bringing God to this environment. Far from it. Rather, God, you know, God is at work in all things. God, the spirit is moving in all things, in all contexts. And so it's the job of all people, but especially for someone who's a missionary or who's arriving as a messenger into a new context, to listen deeply to the movement of the Spirit in this community. And I think that coordinates well with what, with, with what Suez is saying, is, you know, in order for me to build that canal, <laughs> you know, I have to have an idea of where, where the water is flowing from the other direction, right? And, and so if I don't have that information or I'm not attentive to how the spirit is already moving in this community, I'm going to miss that opportunity for our my water and the other person's water to flow together. So that that's that. Having gone through some some of the essential points of the text, certainly there's so, so many more that could be covered. It's uh, rich, dense, many good points. Good for a slow read, I would say. Uh, I found this great text to, to contemplate and, and read over the course of the summer here. What I would now like is for you, Laurel, and, and myself a little bit later as well, to share any critiques that you might have of the text uh, before we get into any um, questions that we want to ask each other and, and going more into our own experience. Experiences. I think this is going to be a pretty brief uh, section for me, somewhat uncharacteristically. I think that Swiss himself is a pretty critical voice to mainstream liberation theology at the time he was writing. I was really trying to figure out when this was written. A lot of articles in this Mysterium Liberationis volumes are like reprints of stuff that was written earlier or speeches that were given 10 years ago and are finally written up. But this Swiss piece seems to be written for this volume. He's citing documents from 1988, 1989. And so it makes me think that this is written, that someone asked him to write this for the volume, obviously based on experience and other writings and speeches from before. But he's he seems to be responding to the inability, I think, of some first generation liberation theology to account for culture with such a strict classist view of who the people are, who the poor are. So we'll talk about that a little bit later, but just being aware of where he's coming from as an author makes me 
want to be less critical of what he's saying because he himself is trying to point out a weak spot with some of his contemporaries I think the only like question mark that I really had off to the side and a lot of the questions that I could have are stuff that I know grows and develops from this tradition of Latin American theology more concerned with culture develops later so we get there and I'm benefiting and I have my critical questions because of work that people did in the late 90s early 2000s and all of that but when he's listing acculturation inculturation uh you know all the different ways that cultures men mend blend and meld together in a person's life um i'm interested in the formulation of talking about interculturation inculturation still seems to be one directional and in the second half of his writing as you're talking about swiss does he's aware of and lives the reality lives the experience of intercultural exchange going both ways and this is upheld even in like magisterial documents about liturgical enculturation that the gospel really is articulated in distinct ways in different cultures and those cultures are at the same time transformed by their encounter with christianity so it's not just enculturation in that the gospel as some form of an idea gets planted in a context, but that context actually changes how we articulate and think about the Christian message also. So I think I would have appreciated a little bit more emphasis on how those influences flow both ways when he's first presenting this idea of encounter between cultures, because uh, that seems important for a lot of the work that he does later about why the first missionary attempts in Latin America and the Caribbean were uh, not truly missionary attempts. So that would be my only little question mark. In general, I'm pretty sympathetic to the case that he's making, especially in the first part of the document. It's a lot of like presenting definitions or presenting different ideas of what's going on. And he does this in a very thoroughgoing way, I would say far more in depth than you see from other liberation theologians at this time. Yeah, absolutely. For my critique, I just want to give one. And I remember reading this text, returning to it over the summer. I was I was on a little train and I remember kind of just grunting out loud when I, when I came across this one line and I'm still very perplexed by it. I don't know what to do with it because it just seems so far from my experience. I don't know. Maybe we could talk about it. Suez asserts that it is easier to insert oneself into the world of the poor than to insert oneself into a culture. A few things going on with that. So he cites the example of St. Francis. I'm not sure whether he's talking about St. Francis Xavier or St. Francis of Assisi, to be honest, but he says, quote, who shed his social class in an instant, End quote. I, maybe he was writing in an ironic way, but I don't, it's hard to say. But this paragraph made me uneasy. I, I'm not really sure how helpful or accurate even it is to say that socioeconomic insertion can be instantaneous or that it's simpler than cultural insertion. And there's also the question of the relations between these two. Like, Can we really separate socioeconomic identity and cultural identity? And I, I give two examples here. One of them will come from my experience in France, which was, again, it was last summer. I was in Marseille. As often comes up when you're learning a new language uh, in class, one of the, uh, the professors asked, you know, well, David, what have you noticed about the differences between the United States and France? Well, I said, to be honest, my experience of France is, is a French Jesuit 
experience of France, which is probably different from general, ex- I mean, there's no general experience between the two. But um, I said, well, one of the things that I have noticed, though, would be that at the lunch table in the United States, maybe my average length of stay would be 20 minutes. Whereas in the lunch table in my Jesuit communities I've been in so far, it's gone on for about an hour and a half. That is kind of shocking to me. You know, I get to the point maybe when I'm about 45, 45 minutes to an hour, you know, it's fine. But then I get a little antsy. I'm like, I want to start with my afternoon, you know. Then my teacher said, ah, I see that in the Jesuits, you preserved the bourgeois French traditions. And then she also said in the neighborhood where I'm from in Marseille, I would imagine that in a lot of places, maybe one, people don't even eat lunch at home because they're eating on the fly or they're eating at work. And then you're talking about, you know, eating at table, being present for a long time. A a lot of the families in my neighborhood, they're eating in front of the television in the evening after a long work work day, and they're just totally exhausted. You know, they can't even imagine thinking of having an intellectual conversation that would go on for two hours about things that they probably don't care about that much. So, that that was her take on all of this but but i saw in this moment this conglomeration of questions of class you have questions of race you have questions of national identity even here in france you know people in paris will say well in marseille uh, it's not the same culture as the one in paris it's more of a mediterranean culture it's more it's part of a different tradition so i think to me it was it, it's just a little too simple to speak about it in the way that he does here but then another thing a shocking one was an experience from Guatemala. This is, I'm 18, 19 in rural Guatemala. This was at the time when I was working with the Uerehene Maiz. And and I remember just at one point saying, you know, I really want to be in solidarity with the struggle that's going on here. And someone said, solidarity is a good word for that because some people want to say like I want to become or you know I want to be one but but he's like you're all you'll always be different and you'll never be able to shed your background in the sense that you can always go back to your comfortable suburban life with your family in the outskirts of Chicago and I'll be here that was a very powerful conversation for me because it really puts the privilege and the fact that um, the, what's coming to mind here would be would be uh, Heidegger would be that kind of the past really pushes you from behind. You know, there's no there's no like the Sartre, you know, Sartre talks about, you know, you can build yourself up from nothing. You know, you realize that you're nothing and you can build yourself back up in creativity. And I'm, I'm more with Heidegger on this one in that, you know, the, no, the past pu- pushes you from behind and you can't just shed it. I mean, I don't like that word uh, shedding, uh, <laughs> uh, shedding class, shedding culture. It's just, I don't, I don't think it's authentic to allow it to happen. I think that people can be transformed over time, but to shed, maybe not. So that's my, my little uh, critique. Maybe before we move on, is there anything more that you wanted to share about that, Laurel? Yeah, I think those are really insightful critiques of what Swiss is saying. The distinction between like, is it easier essentially to change classes or to change culture? That seems to be part of Swiss's critique of mainstream liberation theology at his time. And again, like the the concept that we talk about now as intersectionality was not available to folks. And so there was a competition felt almost between class struggle and the the suffering and oppression that happens as a result of class and 
ethnic national struggle, the suffering and oppression that happens as a result of different cultures under the same secular government or between countries with more or less resources. So I think, yeah, that's something that really gets talked about and clarified, I think, over time. And the way Swiss talks about it here is still very, like, shocking in in how separate those concepts are. Yeah, for sure. When we were preparing the episode, we both kind of had questions about each other's intercultural experiences. I know I've shared a little bit from my experience, and maybe I'll share an additional example in a moment, but um, wanted to invite you, Laurel, to share maybe there's one or two intercultural experiences that maybe relate to the text or that don't relate to the text that you wanted to to add or just share to give some some more of a, a rounding out to a personal dynamic to your your relationship with the text. Sure. I think what you were just talking about, about the our, our pasts forming who we are now in a kind of indelible way, really gets it at, at my question about this interculturality thing is like, do you think you've ever had an experience where your home culture feels strange to you? Or is it possible if 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 cultures are to some degree this hermetically sealed, Swiss says, world, drawing on George Lindbeck's cultural linguistic model of cultures being understandable kind of only from the inside and how much work or processing has to happen to be able to see something that was once foreign to you as an insider and that insider-outsider dynamic as helpful or not helpful at all. That's kind of what got me thinking about this. Um, And again, like a million caveats, I think it's hard, especially given some like structural differences between middle class North American racialized as white culture and like trying to objectify or talk about Salvadoran culture leads to either caricatures or romanticizing. So I'm always kind of hesitant to be like, this is what Salvadoran culture is like, because it is internally diverse, as you know, and um, people have different sort of relationships to it. The Salvadoran diaspora certainly has its own culture. Class affects all of this. I think maybe one general area that I could tell different stories of like me really putting my foot in my mouth or like really having strange experiences of feeling like North American culture was foreign to me is is the Salvadoran idea of futurity, like time, which is very broad. But what I mean about that in a concrete example is earlier when we were talking, you said God willing at the end of your sentence. And I don't know if that's something that you've developed from your time in Honduras or if that's a Jesuit tick, but folks saying primero Dios, almost as a filler word, almost as a habitual way of punctuating any sentence about the future. I'll see you next week. Ah, yes, primero Dios, God willing. Or, oh, by the time we come back to that, it'll have figured itself out. Ah, primero Dios. Or, yeah, next year I'll start high school. Primero Dios. It's almost a warning. It's like, you are not in control of your future. If God wills you to go to high school next year, then you'll go to high school next year. But don't have the absolute hubris to assume that you know what's going to happen in the future. It is almost an admonishment when I was really thinking about what was going on there, because it wasn't natural for me, right, to end my sentences with, oh, primero Dios, or to respond to someone talking about what they want to cook for dinner tomorrow with primero Dios. And so as I was thinking about, like, making a conscious choice to work that into my language, or how I wanted to respond to that, or what it was communicating. And of course, you can't read so much into a, a, a like almost filler word even. Um, but but this kind of caution about saying you have too much control about the future manifests in so many other ways. And these are things that have come up in 
working between U.S. academia and Salvadoran ecclesial-based communities. Trying to plan anything more than a month in advance in El Salvador is very difficult. Whereas in U.S. academia, I have to propose a study abroad course years before I'm ever going to have to find lodging for students, right? So if I propose a course this fall, we won't be going till 2026. Well, no one community is going to say, oh, yes, of course, we can absolutely receive you in March 2026, because like, who knows what's going to be happening then? And this is in some ways given. It's in some ways a result of like how history has happened to El Salvador in a lot of ways. Colonialism, foreign intervention, imperialism, ongoing coloniality. I mean, that's in part a given and it's in part self-perpetuated because folks will not plan anything (laughs) or it's in part self-perpetuated because folks do make giant decisions that change their whole lives in such an immediate way. In the organization I was working for, and this is, again, given a result of nonprofit structure and how international funding works and received, perpetuated by the internal bylaws of the organization, everyone's contract ends in December. And then maybe you're called back in January. Maybe you're not. Maybe, and many people migrated at the end of the year, left the country. Many people decided to quit their jobs and the organization hoped they would come back and finish the project. It's just so precarious. Whereas I, as a volunteer, was like, all right, it's May. I need to figure out if I'm going to stay next calendar year. And people are like, we have no way of of figuring that out. So I, I go through all of that. Just there's there's different levels and different ways that this works. And I think that Salvadoran Futurity and North American futurity are are just different historical experiences of having control over your future. And it so shapes a lot of aspects of culture. A way that that's maybe come into my own habitual interactions with time is I do find myself being less confident or less sharing, less uh, vocal about what kind of work I can promise or saying, oh, yes, I submitted an article to this and hopefully it'll come out. You don't know what's going to happen. You don't talk about it or share anything until it is for sure. That's a way that I've kind of seen it develop in me. Maybe just one other aspect of like culture where I have felt these tensions and these differences ecclesially is in terms of sacraments. I think folks that grow up in the U.S. church, the right to a sacrament is much more felt or the invitation to a sacrament And I'm talking about receiving the Eucharist during Mass. I'm talking about marriage as a sacrament. In Latin America, you know, folks don't always go up to receive Eucharist. And this depends on the culture of the parish. Sometimes it's like women who aren't wearing skirts can't receive the Eucharist because they will be shamed. So not like doctrinally sound reasons, but classist things that have developed over time. These are these are effects of how violently Christianity came to Latin America and how it was tied up in our ideas of gender and family and correctness. And sometimes it's if you think you've sinned, don't go and receive Eucharist. And that is way less enforced in the, in the U.S. church. Marriage, when I got married, some of my friends in base communities thought I had like abandoned their way of being church because we got married and like had a ceremony about it. So there's there's a lot of different tensions and understandings that I don't know if they can always be bridged or should be. And those those are just some of the ways that's come up for me. Yeah. Yeah, it's something that I wanted to share. It's it's kind of a more intense experience. So I'll I'll preface it uh, with that. 
this was also when I was 18, 19, and was in uh, rural Guatemala. And I went to a very small town that was in the mountains, had large uh, indigenous community presence. We were going to give these workshops that were about young people participating in the political process. Part of it was kind of to raise awareness about how the political process works, how voting works, what to do if irregularities are perceived, you know, different things like that. So it was a conscientization project on on voting rights, we could say. I was often invited to, you know, be part of the presenting team after, you know, after I had been there for a little while. And so I remember getting up uh, in front of this group and then speaking and sharing a few things. And there was just like no response. I was not feeling that they were, we were like on the same page at all. And at one point I was, I was kind of feeling frustrated. I'm like, why are, why, why is this public not responding to what I'm saying? And And I turned to my friend who was a co-presenter who had been to this area many times. And I said, during a break, what is happening? And he said, well, like at first I was like, do they understand my Spanish? Um, And they're like, no, they, they understand exactly what you're saying. But just keep in mind that the last time someone tall with lighter skin and with a different accent came to this town, it was probably to steal natural resources or to carry out acts of war. So they're going to need some time to warm up to you because they don't have an immediate trust for the outsider and probably even less trust for someone from the United States coming to tell them about voting and politics. He was like, you know, they'll warm up to you in time, <laughs> but but it's not going to be easy. And uh, keep that in mind. That was a, I think it was, well, it was really a shocking experience for me because maybe part of what I thought at that time is you know, if you put on a smile and try to understand people and try to relate to people, then in the end, things will go well. Maybe it's the little, some, my novice master called it the little orphan Annie perspective. He said, you know, you put, put you're never fully dressed without a smile, you know, just go into a context. What I realized there is just that there, it was one of my first coming into the sense of the weight of history. And and when I am presenting myself before a group, I'm carrying many different identities. Now, as a Jesuit, as a North American, as a white person of European descent. So there's, yeah, there's many different identities that are being carried, and these are being interpreted by people in different ways. Sometimes it's a positive interpretation. You know, it's, uh, oh, we... I love America. Uh, go Chicago Bulls. You know, so, I mean, there's you get all kinds of different reactions. Other people have a much more negative experience. I remember this is another kind of more heavy hitting one. I was here in Paris, and we were invited in the community to receive uh, two refugees in the house for a few nights. And one was coming from Palestine, and one was coming from Iraq. It could be a little emotional for me to say this, but. Um, we were going out to get dinner together. We were talking all about culture, you know, what, what are the different cultures, uh, how all of us are foreigners living in France, you know, how has the French culture been for you? And I asked uh, the young man coming from Iraq, you know, what is, what are the things you've noticed about the French culture? And he said, the main difference that I noticed is that the United States has not invaded France in the last 20 years. And that's the biggest difference. And that hit me so hard. Oh, 
So yeah, so you have you have these moments of personal connections, moments of also international connections and experiences of of oppression, and and that moment really st- stuck with me. It's something I prayed with for a while, and takes me back to that experience when I was in Guatemala of something how I'm interacting with with a person in a one to one way, but there's so much that's going on in the international and oppressive ways. Want to then move into some questions. We, we've we developed a few questions uh, for each other that are based on this text and based on our, our experiences. So I will uh, turn it over to Laurel for the first question. So there was this sentence in the first part of the text that really hit me. Like I had to put the book down and walk away um, because it, it so precisely sums up a lot of the different dynamics and assumptions that are in mind when we talk about colonization and especially the role of the Catholic Church in the colonization of a lot of Latin America and the Caribbean. And so I just kind of wanted to parse this sentence out and discuss like what is going on in the sentence. And it the, the sentence is speaking about um, the indigenous folks who were living in Latin America and the Caribbean when the Spanish invaded. It's that the sentence starts with they, and that's who the they is referring to. It says, quote, they sought baptism, which assured them anthropological recognition, but within their group, they continued to identify with their religion, end quote. And this is in the context of Swiss talking about how the gospel was never Christianly enculturated into um, early what we now call Latin American and Caribbean cultures. And this piece of which assured them anthropological recognition really, really stuck out to me. So I was wondering, like, as I'm reading that, you know, how, what do you hear going on in that sentence? What does that identify for you? And what does it mean for the process of enculturation or, or mission work today? I wanted to frame this question a little bit with beginning with a historical document that I'm sure you, Laurel, and many listeners would be familiar with, which is the Sicut Dudum, which is a document from 1435, which was written by Pope Eugene IV on the enslavement of people indigenous to the Canary Islands. So I want to read a few sentences from this to contextualize this quote. Quote, were even at times tricked and deceived by the promise of baptism, having been made a promise of safety that was not kept, end quote. And then another quote, we will that like sentence of excommunication be incurred by one and all who attempt to capture, sell, or subject to slavery, baptized residents of the Canary Islands, or those who are freely seeking baptism, from which excommunication cannot be absolved except as was stated above, end quote. On one hand, when you read this, if you read this text, there's part of it which is very positive. The, the, the Pope is kind of saying missionaries and, and colonizers are coming to these lands, and why are you stealing these people's lands and enslaving them? So that part is more positive. The part that is less positive would be there is a great ambiguity in the text, in my reading of it, about the status, the human status of people who are baptized or not baptized, because the text sometimes lends itself to be read as in, don't enslave the Christians who have already been baptized, but feel free to, or maybe we're going to turn a blind eye to, if you enslave people who have not been baptized. 
that I think is one of the the framings. I th- I think what we can what we can gather from all of this though is that to some degree, a baptism afforded enslaved and indigenous people at least the promise of and at most the granting of some amount of social status and protection. And sometimes as the Pope was bringing up in this document, that is abused. It's a pretext, you know, uh, get baptized and we'll treat you better. But then maybe to some extent, it could be true in some cases. So there's no, what I want to pull from all of this would be that there's no ritual of conversion that exists in a social, economic, cultural vacuum. And in a context of cultural domination, it's not surprising that many people receive baptism for the sake of their survival without altering their religious beliefs and practices. How this situation might affect our understanding of mission, evangelization, and and, and syncretism is certainly complex, but I want to just share two points of departure. One, there should be a process of materializing and demystifying when it comes to the way we talk about the history of missions. Many Catholics are regularly taught that miraculous or mystical events are responsible for why masses of peoples converted to Christianity. I think of the story of Constantine, in this sign you will conquer. I was just in a church the other day that had a fresco of this. So this kind of grandiose event that led Constantine and the Roman Empire to turn Christian, quote unquote, in Christian And then I think of the story of Our Lady of Guadalupe and Juan Diego as well, which also is kind of this, it's sometimes spoken of as if this one moment of this miraculous experience led to, you know, the huge massive conversion of the Mexican people, you know, and it it makes for a good story, you know, for for the Catholic who maybe wants to, some Catholics are trying to paint a certain picture of how this all happened. Now, having said that, I don't doubt at all. I do believe that God acts in history, sometimes in miraculous ways. And I don't even necessarily, I mean, maybe to some degree, I I doubt some aspects of the legitimacy of some legendary stories that are told. But for me, that's not really the point. What, What I do doubt is when those grandiose experiences are spoken of in a way that is totally disconnected from the social forces at work in their respective times and places. I do want to have a both-and approach or a holistic approach to the question of conversion. I, I think the Spirit works in people's lives in ways that are mysterious, but there, there's also material and empirical factors in addition to our the spiritual and mysterious factors. And both are involved in differing ways and to different degrees in the formation of people's religious identities. Now, a second point regarding evangelization is that this history of the relationship between religious ideology and social economic domination is very real today. Without naming any names, I think probably many people who are listeners to the podcast would would pick up on maybe what I'm referring to, which would be some of the big figures in U.S. new evangelization today are both heavily funded by the U.S. capitalist class and interpret the gospel in ways that really block people seeking liberation from oppression. There was a podcast episode I was listening to the other day where someone from a parish was talking about how there's three priests at the parish. One is from European background, one is from a Filipino background, one is from African background. And he was saying, 
you know, we never talk about diversity or inclusion in our parish because we, we have three priests here who come from different regions. And so we're just living it. You know, we're just living it. And then he was saying, instead of talking about diversity and inclusion all the time, maybe we should be talking about how we're all united in God. And to me, this was horrible because it's, a to it's trying to spiritualize and erase people's experiences of oppression. And I don't doubt the fact that uh, I, I would have to say my my church experience has been an experience that has opened me up to people of different cultures and and backgrounds and experiences, and that's great. But at the same time, it's not as if we're to make a utopia out of the church. I'm very I'm very afraid when people think of the church in ways that this, the problems going on in society are not being reproduced in the church. There was this idea of the church as the perfect society, you know, that was kind of challenged at Vatican II. Here we're all equal or we're well-ordered by our hierarchy and we're forming a model that is going to penetrate all of society and all society will be Christianized. And But really, I remember there's a university professor who who once told me uh, in my in my experience in the United States, he said, I will I will bet you any problem that is happening in U.S. society at large will be reproduced on this campus. The church is not exempt from larger situations of justice and oppression. They reproduce themselves within the church, and we can't just ignore it or pretend that it's not happening. That's my initial response that there's so much uh, to your deep question. Uh, maybe you have something to add. Well, you're you're drawing in the, the document um about not enslaving baptized peoples in the Canary Islands made me think of and remember how that tradition kind of developed later in North America, the Virginia law on baptism in, 19, in 1667, quote, it is enacted and declared by this grand assembly and the authority thereof that the conferring of baptism does not alter the condition of their person as to his bondage or freedom. So later on in North America, it the Christians who are enslaving if that's a thing that we can talk about, decide that baptism actually doesn't mean that you get to be not enslaved. So so there's this recognition that like it was a false thing anyway, and they kind of go the wrong way in, in recognizing that. The other thing that just struck me about this quote quickly is how the normative symbols of the church are interpreted differently in different parts of the world. The symbols of sacramental celebrations of baptism of Eucharist don't mean the same thing when they've been introduced violently. And that's something that I really feel coming through. And how at the root of our material expressions of faith and spirituality, how much that really needs to be questioned and relativized based on how the church has used those symbols in history. So it was just a very stark example for me of that. Um, the second thing I want to talk about, this was this kind of shed some things we're going to talk about in a new light for me. When Swiss is talking about re reconstructing historically how culture has been at work in the Christian tradition, and he gets to the Reformation and he says that the Protestant assumption of the vernacular as a proper worship language really goes a long way in recognizing how much culture is at work in our expressions of faith. Um, he then he then relates this to kind of the quest for the historical Jesus or historical cultural historical critical methods. And he's he's critical of these in the sense that we can never get back to a we can't recover 
Jesus of Nazareth. We can't recover exactly what early Christianity is like. And the patristic retrieval, ressourcement, which is very in vogue um, in the mid-1900s, is never going to give us a pure Christianity that we can go back to and then try to enculturate that pure Christianity in contemporary times. And this is related to one way that the Catholic tradition understands the authoritative role of tradition for Christianity. That the way that our understanding of faith has developed over time since the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus in history, the way that that's developed over time matters. That the decisions and teachings that the church has come to over the last 1,500 years, 1,000 years, 500 years, are normative expressions, are true developments of the witness that, that is present in the life, death, and res resurrection of Christ, which we don't have direct access to. And so on the one hand, that really speaks to how much further cultural, further experiences of enculturation and further encounters with a more diverse horizon of human cultures might affect how we normatively express our understanding of faith. I just am so struck constantly by how deep and profound some of the changings of our expressions need to be and how much Christianity has transformed over the last 2,000 years, for better or for worse, and the depth of transformation that needs to continue to happen. And then on the other hand, um, what are the real effects of Christianity's long history of cult cultural narcissism? For a long time, normative Christian doctrine has been expressed through European philosophical categories. And if those are true developments and expressions of our faith, what kind of harm has it done that they've been coming from one particular cultural lens? So kind of both sides of this question of the authority of tradition in, in Catholic Christianity was really cast in a new light for me when Swiss is critiquing a little bit historical critical methods from this perspective of interculturation. I want to respond to this one in two ways as well. The first one would be talking a little bit about this quest for the historical Jesus. And I want to maybe offer two sides to this story. I think on one hand, I would say the quest for the historical Jesus to me can be helpful in the sense that some of that quest for the historical Jesus helps us to understand Jesus as an incarnate human being. And so this quest for the historical Jesus can be part of what I see as a positive project of despiritualizing and demystifying the figure of Jesus and seeing Jesus in his true relationships with uh, his cultural context, his political context, etc. Whereas sometimes when one is reading the Bible, it's so caught up in what we already think of about Jesus, how we've been taught about Jesus through catechism, how we how Jesus has been spiritualized into our environment and into our culture, that sometimes that quest for the historical Jesus can help us to be shocked out of this uh, mythologized figure of Jesus. So I think that's the positive component. But the negative one, which is a really, there's another way in which this could be a really oppressive endeavor too. The point of the reign of God is not intrinsically united to the first century in the sense that it is developed in the course of history through the activity of the Holy Spirit in history. So if we fixate on that moment in the first century, we will miss things about how the Spirit is act acting in history now. So I'm a little bit cautious sometimes of when people say, well, Jesus would have responded to this situation in this way, because look at this Bible passage. 
where he responded in this cultural milieu and they're trying to make one-to-one relationships with, you know, the cultural milieu then and how it is now. Whereas I would say I would be much more interested in saying, okay, yes, we get some some principles from the Bible about how we are to respond in ethical and political situations, but I'm much more interested in how the Holy Spirit is working today, because this is where I am. God is in the here and now, and the Spirit of Christ is living in me and living in the life of the church today and and in the life of the world today. And so I don't want to be too attached to that. And I think this is one of the things that Juan Luis Segundo is really one of the key liberation theologians to bring this up in talking about how we need to move. He puts this in a blunt way, but we need to move from a Christocentrism to a, a rain centrism, or even sometimes he'll speak about moving, you know, from a Christocentrism into a more of a spirit-centered Christianity, uh, because the Bible is not a a dead document in in that sense. I mean, it's a living document that's breathing life into the church today, and so we can't just treat it as a dead historical document. If you're so, there's a risk in that. Now, regarding interculturality and the understanding of Christian tradition, I wanted to bring this back to a point that you raised about how sacraments are interpreted. Because what does it mean in a church context where there's high levels of inequality that are reproduced within the church? There's high levels of inequality in society. There's high levels of inequality that will sometimes be reproduced in the church. When we go to the moment of baptism and on a spiritual plane, we're saying you are now all sisters and brothers who have an equal dignity in Christ. Now, all of a sudden, it seems that we're living in in a mystery world. Where And I, and I think where this is where... <laughs> Because that equality in Christ is not being reflected in reality, or it has very little to do with how the church and society is actually living really in its material circumstances. And that's where I think Suez is good and where a healthy amount, not an over-exaggerated doctrinaire, you know, dogmatic amount, of Marxism is helpful because Marxism really helps with that ideological critique that, as Marx says at the beginning of the German ideology, sometimes we've created these figures in our head, these phantasms that in a way they emanate from reality because really part of it is a trying to justify, oh, well, we're, we're all equal you know, in the end. And that's a justification for the, the current system that on some level we're all equal and we'll all be equal in the reign of God. Then there's the other side of it, which is totally detached from reality in the sense that if you if you scientifically observe the conditions that people are living in, and then you say we're all sisters and brothers, then it's just it's just so far removed that that it is a specter. You know, it's it's a phantasm that we've created in our minds, and that has then now come to dominate. You know, so so it's there's a stale way of of doing baptism, you know, and saying we're all sisters and brothers. But if there's no Acts chapter two and Acts chapter four and caring for the widows of the different communities in an equal way and, and all of that, then what does that all really mean? And how are people interpreting that act? 
act of baptism. It's almost as if I'm accepting in a way this situation. I'm accepting this spiritual mystified plane that is not going to allow me to you know, seek revolutionary change that will maybe bring bring about a true sense of being sisters and brothers. So I mean, that's there's so much more to that question. Maybe you want to respond to, to that as well. It's a really good question. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is why I'm so interested in Latin American sacramental and liturgical theology, because if if the normative seven sacraments of the Catholic Church are interpreted in such a fundamentally different way because of the violence and destruction with which they were introduced on the continent, what does that mean for them being guaranteed conduits of grace? What does that mean for God's yes that the Catholic Church is, affirms happens through the sacraments? What responsibility do we have to make that yes real for a sacrament to be valid? And this is something that I've started thinking about, you know, with the accompaniment and questions of folks in the communities. They'll say, our whole society is Christian, our whole society is baptized, and we have such an unequal society. How is that possible? So yeah, I think you're you're getting exactly to what I find so interesting, certainly about, about thinking about our reception of some of the normative doctrines and symbols of our tradition. So I have two questions uh, to pose. The first one is going back a little bit to that dialectical movement of colonization, decolonization, integration into the world system or resistance to that. So Suez suggests that people focus on the construction of a national cultural identity in the wake of independence. How have different groups in El Salvador gone about the construction of a national identity since its independence? Who would be some of the key people, the key historical events, and the key values in play in different people's construction of who are the people of El Salvador? And then what what's at stake in this? What tensions have you observed? And then also, who has been left out or othered or repressed in this process of the the formation of some kind of dominant El Salvadoran identity? Yeah, so this is such an important question on several different levels, historically, sociopolitically, and also ecclesially. This is the Liberation Theology podcast. So, So thinking about who liberation theology says is a people, how liberation theology gets to what a people is, and how other Latin American theologies get to what a people is. La Teología del Pueblo, the, the, the people's theology that develops out of Argentina mostly after the Second Vatican Council, understands people in a fundamentally different way than liberation theology coming out of Brazil, southern Mexico, um, Chile. And, and, and one of the hinges that that turns on is class versus culture. Liberation theology comes to understand people first by starting, as you've mentioned in other episodes, uh, ad nauseum maybe, is like the majority experience of Latin America and the Caribbean is of inhuman poverty and misery. And so if we're going to talk about the Latin American people, we have to talk about the poor. The poor are the fundamental experience of who we as a people are. So then when we talk about people or popular theology, we're talking about theology from the experience of suffering, of oppression, and of resisting that oppression. La Teología del Pueblo in Argentina is a little bit different. I'm talking about figures like Lucio Jera, Carlos Maria Gali, who start with this very like particular Argentinian interest in the social sciences and in developing a political identity that is rejects both European capitalism and European communism. And so Latin or 
Argentinian theologians reject kind of both this continuation of the colonial understanding of Christianity, but also an understanding of Christianity that relies too much on a European interpretation of Marxism, Leninism. And they want to come up with like, who are we as an Argentinian people? And how do we understand that? And what do we offer? And Lucia Ojeda, for example, ends up defining a people as any group that shares a particular political project for life. And so our understanding of who a people is, is any collective working for the common good, we could say, or any collective working for the health and well-being of all members of a nation. Later then you get some Christian indigenous comparative scholars or indigenous theologians saying, well, when you're talking about a nation, you're really talking about a nation state, and a lot of your formulations leave out the indigenous peoples and, and the original nations of our territories. So there, you know, there's all kinds of conversation happening there, but who is a people, what, what does it mean to become a people and to form a people is a really rich conversation in Latin America, Latin American theology throughout these decades. Some of the historical particulars in El Salvador that kind of inform this, and the main alternative theological trend in El Salvador is liberation theology. Some of the, the informing historical events here are, of course, after independence, mestizo pride, Central American identity is, is very strong. But then in the 1930s, in 1932 in January, the Communist Party had just been founded in El Salvador. And the, the dictator at the time associates the Communist Party with indigenous peoples. And so there are huge massacres of indigenous peoples at the beginning of 1932. We're talking about tens of thousands of, of people, a huge majority of the indigenous population. And then folks who survive are forced to hide their dress, hide their language, hide their foods, hide their stories, and really go under, underground in a way that really is is a loss of indigenous cultural identity in El Salvador. El Salvador is such a small place that um, this really hits our idea of who we are as a people hard in a different way than somewhere like Guatemala, which certainly suffers persecution of indigenous peoples as well. But there's kind of more places to go. It's much harder for the national government to extend its fingers into every corner of the country, whereas in El Salvador, it's it's much smaller. So this this real loss of the indigenous inheritance of culture and passing on. People are working on recovering that and of living out, folks who have survived of living out and telling their story. There have been so many efforts to recover and tell the stories of the Tatas and Nanas who survived the massacre of 1932 and still remember that. I also have to say like, like Afro-diasporic cultural expressions in El Salvador are so hidden and repressed and swept under the rug also. El Salvador, if we think about the colonial period, was on the margins of the Central American colonial republic. And so El Salvador was like kind of a marginal, that what is now El Salvador is a marginal coastal territory of the vice kingship of Guatemala. And so when you had um, formerly enslaved folks escaping Guatemala, they would come down to the Pacific coast and then spread out down through El Salvador. So at departments like Usulután, San Miguel, you have a lot of folks who have this kind of cimarron history in their in their families. But the cultural narrative is that there are no Black people in El Salvador. That's what most people will say. That's even what a lot of ecclesial-based communities will continue to say and try to correct people on. Um, and so the struggle to recognize the, the Afro-diasporic heritage in El Salvador is an ongoing struggle. So El Salvador really has a lot working against it to develop evangelical identity of a people, either according to Teología del Pueblo or liberation theology, or certainly indigenous theologies. There's a lot of hurdles there that are still very fresh and very um, powerful. So the next question, 
would be Suez often mentions the importance of articulating the link between one local culture at the interpersonal level and two, the international struggle for liberation at the structural level. And so how have you come to articulate this link um, in your own uh, work and theory and praxis? And what have you learned about the relationships between these two levels? And I wanted to bring up the, we often hear, or you'll see it on a sign, think global, act local, or maybe on a t-shirt. Is that an appropriate formulation for you or, or way of dealing with these two interrelating aspects of intercultural and international uh, processes of, of liberation? Sure. This question certainly gets to a lot of what I've been learning about with folks in El Salvador over the last decade or so. So this question kind of gets to questions or my what I'm coming to learn about the connections between liberation theology and then decolonial or descolonial theories and theologies. Because I think liberation theology and the kind of social praxis that liberation theology was influencing had this kind of revolutionary, certainly utopic dream. Otra, otro mundo posible, another world is possible, or hasta la victoria final, like until we have our final victory. And like, I always turn to the, the Zapatistas in Mexico, who in the mid 90s kind of reformulated otro mundo posible to be otros mundos posibles, other possible worlds, realizing that the ways that human beings interact with, e with each other, excuse me, and the way that human cultures are we don't just need one hegemonic culture at the end of time. We all need to be able to like flower into who we are and that the diversity is a strength and the expression of that diversity is actually, to put it in Christian terms, what God wants. That's part of the reign of God is the flourishing of diversity. So I think that some of the moves from liberation theology towards what I would call more of a decolonial or descolonial praxis have to do with tying up some of these contentions or differences that I mentioned before about is the pueblo, are the people the poor people? Is it the poor class? Is the pueblo the politically active folks working for a political project that's going to bring us fulfillment? Is a pueblo only based on ethnic cultural identity and language? Is there some interplay between those? And and decolonial theory, I think, gives us a great framework for, well, a useful framework, at least, for thinking about unity between different ways that human beings are made to be less than human. That being the criteria, human flourishing and human life being the criteria. That insight has turned many folks, I think, to more local arenas of praxis. So in El Salvador, something that I could mention that relates to the previous question, too, is this popular press, Equipo Maiz, um, which creates like pedagogical and didactic materials about history, about gender inequality, about language, about political movements. If there's a new law proposed, for example, they'll write a popular version of that law so people know what's going on. They have weekly news reports that are illustrated and distributed by photocopy. And they have this one book called The History of El Salvador, and I think it's in its 11th edition or something now because it keeps getting changed and added on to. And it's this very popular telling of the highlights the points of Salvadoran history from the perspective of like, what are the meaningful episodes? And historians will look at like, like academically trained historians, both in El Salvador and elsewhere, will look at this volume and be like, this is not, this does not jive with the historical record. But it's so powerful in like, 
the people's imaginary of who we are and where we're coming from. And so efforts like Equipo Maiz to tell local histories and to communicate in a culturally appropriate and meaningful way with people, I see that as such an act of resistance to any like this kind of global mestizo kind of identity. Salvadorans are, of course, very proud of local customs, of the way that we do things, of the foods that we eat. Um, and then some of this, this more intentional recovery, certainly of indigenous languages that is going on with the National University is teaching Nahuatl, or was at least before the pandemic. I don't know if it's come back. The work of Equipo Maiz, the work of El Museo de la Imagen y la Palabra, the Museum of Word and Image, will have rotating exhibits of historical figures of the literary tradition, the poetic tradition in El Salvador. A lot of the popular culture that folks consume is from Mexico and from Colombia. And so really working to uncover the artistic traditions of, of Salvadorans from a lot of different ethnic backgrounds, class backgrounds, political backgrounds. And so I do think there is something to instead of a global project, and this is maybe another critique of Swiss's like analogical concept of culture, can we really identify human cultural values that everyone understands and believes in in the same way? It really gets to this question of cultural relativity and, and how much we have a right to opine about other folks' value systems. And so, so local fully participative local efforts, I think, are what have kind of come about after this time in Latin American history where the big revolutions didn't succeed. Either either revolutionary processes have kind of devolved into similar corrupt and unhelpful political platforms, as an example, Cuba, as an example, Nicaragua. And the reason that that happens is certainly because of enduring imperialism. I mean, embargoes in Cuba are a huge factor in this. Or the Contra affair in Nicaragua, certainly after 1979, after the triumph of the revolution, weakened the Sandinista party. Or you have places like El Salvador where a revolution never triumphed. And and the capitalist um, like structures that endured before the war pretty much remained in place and went untouched by the peace accords. So I think I think the like fervor about a, a victoria final, about another world that we're working towards, the utopic vision uh, really has 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 been empty for folks, has been an empty promise. And so the choice there is, well, nothing matters and we can't do anything. Or let's go back home, let's go back to my family's history, let's go back to the recipes that have been passed down, let's go back to the stories I've been told, and reconstruct who we are as a people from those. So I really do think that that local attention and care and detail about, about those, those very human and very interpersonal ways that we understand ourselves is life-giving for folks at, in the contemporary period, for sure. So I want to finish. We've had an excellent conversation. There's been so much that we have touched on and so much that uh, we could get into in more detail. But do you have any final thoughts uh, before we conclude? And then also, would you be able to speak a little bit about your upcoming work for listeners to look out for? Sure. The church bells are tolling outside my window. So if you can hear those in the background, that's what's going on. My Continual fascination with the topic of culture and enculturation and evangelization is just how much closer we all are to each other than we are to the eschatological vision. That none of us are further along this pilgrim path than the others, and we have so much more to learn from 
each other's perspectives about where we're headed and what we want and what we need as a human people, then any of us is closer to understanding or articulating the, the final instantiation of the reign of God. So I'm just constantly in awe of the distances between each other and then also how we overcome those distances in outpourings of friendship, of connection, of how we can laugh and cry and mourn and celebrate together um, despite some of those differences. So that tension is just something I continue to stand in awe of and and what I'm kind of taking away from this conversation. I'm I'm that's what I'm excited about thinking about in my own work too, specifically in liturgy and sacrament as I've talked about. Last year, 2022, I got to go back to El Salvador and live for a year among the base communities again, and we carried out some pretty exciting qualitative research about non-normative liturgical practices among ecclesial-based communities. So we did a photo voice process and developed a photo exhibit that we put on at the UCA last November. We did some focus group interview style sessions, lots of participating in uh, community and and national level liturgies and, and commemorations. And so we're working on articulating that in Spanish first, you know, that's it. That's we're, we're continuing to dialogue about that as I finish dissertating and um, as we look towards publishing some of that in Spanish. So I'm just starting to talk about some of that in English, just starting to maybe present some papers and think about what that means for liturgical sacramental conversations in the English-speaking world. But I, I hope that that I can continue participating in these conversations and listening to what's really on on folks' hearts and minds in, in this area. So um I'm still in the like hermit stage of working on a lot of these projects, uh, but please, um, yeah, know that I'm interested in listening and and taking in how folks are working about working on these topics in all different corners of the world. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Laurel, for this conversation, for the wisdom and experience, and the research that you have done. I think the work that you're doing is is so important. So it really is an honor to have been able to speak together today and be great to continue working together. Yeah, thanks so much, Shannon. Thanks so much for joining this episode of the Liberation Theology Podcast. Let us finish with a prayer, which I'll be taking from Pope Francis's post-synodal document, Querida Amazonia. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Mother Mary, look upon the poor of the Amazon region, for their home is being destroyed by petty interests. How much pain and misery how much neglect and abuse there is in this blessed land overflowing with life. Touch the hearts of the powerful, for even though we sense that the hour is late, you call us to save what is still alive. Mother, whose heart is pierced, who yourself suffer in your mistreated daughters and sons, and in the wounds inflicted on nature, reign in the Amazon together with your son, reign so that no one else can claim lordship over the handiwork of God. We trust in you, Mother of Life. Do not abandon us in this dark hour. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.